8 is where we are going to be at today as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to use uh, one of the churches, there should be one located in a seat pocket close to you. If you don't have a Bible at all and you want one, congratulations, you've got yourself a brand new Bible. So feel free to just uh, take that along with you. And if you're a child of technology, you can open it up on your idle phone or your Satan song. Whichever way you choose to go, uh, you can find Matthew chapter 8 if you just type it in. As you guys make your way that direction, I just want to remind you of the overview of the Gospel of Matthew when we look at it, and we look at all the different Gospel accounts. Uh, Some of you might wonder, why do we have four different Gospel accounts? And the reason behind that is each one of the writers of the Gospel is actually giving us a different viewpoint, a different vantage, all looking towards the same Jesus. And so what's interesting when you look through Scripture is you actually see uh, multiple people, like Ezekiel, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 1. He gets a view of the throne of God, and what he sees pointing towards the throne are these four-faced creatures. He sees an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And then you fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 4, and you see John the Revelator there looking at the throne of God. And what does he see? He sees Uh, four creatures with the faces of an ox, an eagle, a man, and a lion. And I would propose to you that when we look at our gospel accounts, what we have are actually four different faces that are all looking towards the same throne of God. What I mean by that is the gospel of Mark. Mark's writing to a Roman audience, uh, a country that's, or an entire world that's made up predominantly of slaves. And so as he portrays Jesus, he's portraying him as the suffering servant as the ox, you might want to say. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus, in his own words, even says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, as a servant, he's portrayed as the ox. When you look at the Gospel of John, he writes uh, to the world at large, and he portrays Jesus as a deity. It starts with, in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1. He portrays Jesus as God in the flesh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the picture of deity throughout human history has long been the eagle. And so you get the vantage point of the eagle. And then in the Gospel of Luke, he's writing to a Greek audience, and the Greeks are enamored with the perfect man, with philosophy and all things intellectual. And so what Luke does, being a Greek himself, he actually portrays Jesus as the Son of Man, the perfect man. And so we have... These first three accounts all match up with these faces that pointed towards the throne of God, which leaves us with Matthew, who portrays Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And so I lay all that out to say uh, that as Matthew writes, where he's going to differ a little bit from Luke and Mark, these aren't contradictory accounts, but complementary in the sense that Matthew's writing his gospel uh, topically, not chronologically. His topic is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when you look and you see the stories are in different places in the different Gospels, uh, think back to this, that he's writing with intentionality of portraying Jesus in this way. So in chapter 1, we saw the genealogy of Jesus. If he's going to be the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he must have the right bloodline. And so that's what we see in Matthew chapter 1. Chapter 2, he must fulfill the prophecies spoken of him. Remember the key word in Matthew, if you go through it, it's the word 
fulfilled. He uses this word more than any other uh, gospel account. And so if he's going to fulfill prophecy, then he must fulfill what Isaiah said, that the virgin would give birth, that on his shoulders the government would rest, and that uh, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so God would be with us, and we see that miraculous birth in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we see John the Baptist. Every great king has a forerunner, that one that goes out ahead of him. And so here's John the Baptist proclaiming the coming Savior in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 4, Matthew then portrays Jesus as the Lamb of God. What I mean by that is uh, for the Passover lamb to be uh, considered worthy of a sacrifice, it must be perfect. And so if Jesus is to be perfect, he must be tested and proved. What we find in Matthew chapter 4 is that it's the temptation of Christ. He's tempted in, in all ways that we are tempted. He is tempted with the pride of life, with the lust of the eyes, with the lust of the flesh. And he is found to be worthy to be the Lamb of God. And then in Matthew 5-7, through 7, where we've been the last several weeks, this is the first teaching of Jesus. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. There's five different uh, discourses or sermons in Matthew. And so what we found in chapter 4, as Matthew talks about his ministry, what it would look like is in Matthew 4.23, he actually says, uh, chapter 4, get the right spot here. He says in Matthew 4.23, and Jesus went about all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And so as Matthew lays it out, and he says this is what his ministry is going to look like, he's going to be a teacher and a preacher, and then he's going to be a healer. So it stands to reason that we started with teaching and preaching. Preaching just means to herald something with emphasis that then he would move to his healings. And so in chapters 8 and 9, we have Jesus being laid out there by Matthew as the great healer of Israel. And what this also does is it fulfills prophecy again spoken by him of him in Isaiah 35, that the lame would walk, the blind would see, that the deaf would hear. And so all these people are being brought to him as he heals many. And what he's really doing is he's giving a sneak preview of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. He, he's bringing it right here to earth that someday all these things are going to be taken care of and I'm going to give you a little snapshot. And then what Jesus is also doing is he is proving who he truly is, who he's proclaimed who he is. He's the son of God, the Messiah. But what the works do is they actually prove that he is who he said he is. In fact, in Matthew 14, 11, this is what Jesus said in his own words, Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And so what he's saying is, if you're struggling with believing in me, at least look to the works themselves. Look at what I am doing. Look at what I'm changing in people's lives. So if you struggle with this, look at what's taking place around you. The works prove who he truly was. And so, with all that, let's begin in Matthew chapter 8 with these first four verses. And we will... Hopefully, Lord willing, make it through at least the first 22 verses this morning. It says here, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Now immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one 
but go on your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so we begin with a, a healing of a leper in Israel. Now, leprosy in uh, that day and age was a completely incurable uh, bacterial disease. And oftentimes in the Bible, what they would do is any skin disease, they would just call it leprosy. We're not sure what it is, call it leprosy. Uh, but leprosy in particular is actually, uh, in our world now, is known as Hansen's disease. In the late uh, 1800s, it was named after the scientist that found it, I believe, in uh, Norway, Sweden, somewhere in that part of the world. But he, what he discovered, it was actually a flesh-eating bacterial disease, a truly uh, awful disease. Uh, today, it's curable, but at that point in time, in Jesus' day, it was a death sentence. And so if you uh, contracted leprosy, you were essentially sentenced to death, but not a quick death. It would actually take a long period of time as your skin was eaten away. I hope you ate breakfast this morning. And, and body parts would literally rot and fall off. It was an awful disease. And so for a person that thinks they might have contracted leprosy, the way it would work is uh, you would have some type of a skin rash, or perhaps you just thought it was a pimple. And so you go into the priest and you'd say, hey, check out this pimple. And the priest would look at it. And if he wasn't quite sure what it was, what he would recommend and this is going to sound a little familiar, that you quarantine for 14 days. So you go away on a 14-day quarantine, and then afterwards come back to the priest, and he would re-examine the spot. If it had healed up, you were clear. No big deal. It wasn't leprosy after all. You just need to wash better. Uh, if it was leprosy, they would, uh, he would actually put you away as an outcast. You would be what the Bible says taken outside the camp where you were no longer allowed to see uh, friends, relatives, uh, your own children couldn't be seen with you. And in fact, if you did have to go into public, what they would tell you to do is maintain social distance. Six feet was the recommended distance, and you should wear a face covering. So all this seems to hit home just a tiny bit. And as you wore a face covering, if you went out into public trying to maintain distance in order to keep people away from you because it was such a highly contagious disease, what you would do is you would say, unclean, unclean. You would holler out so that people wouldn't accidentally come into contact with you and contract leprosy. And so, all that to say, in our story, this man doesn't do that. <laughs> He doesn't say unclean. Instead, as he approaches Jesus, he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't follow the standard protocol. And what I also love about this, he doesn't say to Jesus, Lord, can you make me clean? He says, Lord, you can if you are willing. So what that exhibits is tremendous faith from this man. Now, uh, careful to point this all back to the fact that while Jesus always can when it comes to physical healing, it doesn't mean he always will. That there are often times we pray for a thing, we hope for a thing, we have enough faith, but in God's will, he just decides that this is not the thing that you need right now, or not the thing uh, that needs to take place. It is a part of his will. And you think about some famous people in our New Testament that did not receive healing 
there's some pretty big names out there, starting with the Apostle Peter, right? He prayed three different times for this thorn in his flesh to be removed for the Lord to finally say, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And Paul goes on to, to realize, look, if it wasn't for this uh, thorn in my flesh, if it wasn't for this uh, thing that kept me humble, then I would probably be filled up with pride. And so the Apostle Paul is told by the Lord that my grace is sufficient. But if that example isn't good enough, you can think probably the best example, and that would be Jesus himself, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was to be taken away to be crucified, he prays to the Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass, please, if there's any way. But what I love that he ends with, and this is for us to keep in mind as we pray for things and pray for one another, he says, nevertheless, not what I will but thy will be done. That if it is in his will, it will take place. And we need to be seeking his will and searching for it. And so in the case of this man, what Jesus does, now mind you, with these different miracles we're going to look at over these next several weeks, he's going to do miracles in a multitude of ways. He does that in part to, to stop us from trying to figure out a pattern. He wants to make sure you understand the miracle is because he decided, not because we did something in just a certain way. But in this particular miracle, he reaches out and touches the man. Now, if you just read this story quickly, that might not seem like a big deal, unless you're a man who suffered from leprosy for years and years and years. And you've been isolated from everyone you know, everyone you love. If you have never felt another human touch for years, Imagine the impact when the Son of God reaches out and touches you. There was something important about that. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, you're healed. He was saying, I accept you. Now, to most people, uh, they would say touching would then have made Jesus unclean, right? So if you touch a leper, you're then uh, taking the chance of contracting it, making you unclean, except uh, if you're the Son of God. You see, as he touched him, he was clean. That was it. He didn't touch someone that was unclean. He touched someone that was cleansed. Now then, looking at what Jesus gives uh, as a command to this man, and Jesus said in verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest. And so, as they uh, were instructed way back in Leviticus 13 and 14, they were told that if you... Uh, Here's all these rules of if it is leprosy, do this. But then in, verse, in chapter 14, Leviticus, if you think someone has been healed, here's the process. And it starts with going back and presenting yourself to the priest. Now the reason for this is so that the priest can confirm. They don't have a false negative, so you don't infect the entire camp. They can confirm that in fact this person is healed. Once the priest says it's okay, then they're allowed to go back and enter into society. And so Jesus was not there to destroy the law, but there to fulfill the law. This is what the law said. Go to the priest, make yourself known. Now, I would submit to you there's another reason that Jesus had him go to the priest. At the end of verse 4, he said, Go and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony of yourself, as a testimony to them. He was telling this man to go and present himself to testify to the priests. 
Now, in Israel, they've got Leviticus chapter 14 that says, this is what you do when you think you've been healed of leprosy, and yet, do you realize, never in the history of the law has anyone ever actually had to go to this chapter and check this out. Because no one had ever been healed from leprosy. Now, you Bible scholars may go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's some cases in the Old Testament of people being healed of leprosy. There are two, in fact. One is Miriam, the sister to Moses. She was actually healed before the law. And the second one was Naaman the Syrian who was healed when Elisha told him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. But uh, Naaman never went to see a priest. He wasn't even Jewish. And so here you've got a, a man going to the priest to present himself cured of an incurable disease that cannot possibly be healed by any human. And so what I want to point you to is Jesus was actually having him go to testify to the priest's themselves to point to the fact that the messiah was here and so he meets these priests even right where they're at do you realize jesus is always into meeting us where we are at we just have to have our eyes open enough to see him and so often we're not prepared we're not ready we're not looking for him in that place and so for jesus he's presenting himself in this way and yet he he says something interesting. He says, tell no one except the priest. I find that kind of fascinating. A couple reasons, if you're a curious person, why maybe Jesus said this. Uh, one, it was to keep the crowds down. At this point in time, it was like a Beatles world tour. I mean, there were, there were people all over Jesus. It was only getting worse. And so for him to work and minister to folks, remember, he came first as a teacher, not first as a healer. He needed to be able to move around. But the second reason is, Jesus would tell people over and over again that my time has not yet come. He knew that if they got a hold of him, they would try to forcibly make him the king of Israel. They've been waiting on this guy for 700 years. They're waiting on him. So they're going to try to force him into this spot, and yet his time had not come. And the third reason, it's because the, the religious uh, conservative group had already started to plan to kill him. And so it was only going to stoke the fires of those who wanted him off the scene. He challenged their authority. Now then, continuing on to the next healing that Matthew shares in verse 5, we'll go through verse 13 as we look at that of a centurion servant. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done. And his servant was healed that same hour. And so we have now the healing of this centurion's servant. A centurion was a uh, Roman soldier, and he was in charge of 100 troops under him. 
Now, biblically, when we look at different stories that involve centurions, over and over again, what you'll find is they're always painted in a very good light. They're always portrayed as men of outstanding character, impeccable character, in fact. And so this man is no different. And I say that because, look, he, can't, he comes to Jesus. He goes outside of the, the norm. He approaches Jesus not for himself, not even for one of his soldiers that work for him, but instead for one of his servants. Now, this would be way outside of their normal cultural standards because a servant was considered property. They weren't even worth getting worried about. I mean, if this one dies, just go get another one. And yet what we see is this man was of the utmost character. He finds Jesus, tracks him down, and begs him to heal his servant. What we also see is he recognizes the authority of Jesus. The Greek word is exousia. And in fact, when you look at it through Scripture, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, that's the word he uses. And do you realize, as a sidebar, it's the same thing he tells us. He's actually given us authority. And so, uh, this man recognizes the authority that Jesus has. And, and for this reason, for this great faith, he, this man says, look, if you just say the word, I know my servant is going to be healed. Jesus marvels at what the man has to say. Now, this is a, one of only two times that Jesus marveled at what people had to say. The other one, if you go all the way to the, oh, not all the way, go just a little bit to the right, Mark chapter 6, as Jesus is trying to preach and teach in his hometown of Nazareth, as he's there, what we find happens is in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So he's trying to preach and teach in Nazareth, only they don't want to listen to him. That's just Joseph the carpenter's son. Pay him no attention. And so now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, verse 6, because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And so in Mark, he marvels at the unbelief of the Jewish people, of his own hometown people. And because of this unbelief, he could actually do no great work. Do you realize what power unbelief has? That because of it, Jesus could actually do nothing for them because they did not believe. And yet here what we find is there's a Roman soldier that actually has more belief than his Jewish brethren. And I point that out to say that, that in these first two examples, we have the first one being someone outside the camp, someone completely outside the norms of society. And now for the second example, he gives us a, a Gentile servant. And, and this is a big deal for the Jews in this day because they thought the Gentiles were dogs. In fact, they were such a, a group of hypocrites. They would often pray in church. They would say, Lord, thank you for making me a Jewish man and not a woman or a Gentile dog. That's how they would pray. Thank you, Lord, for not making me as bad as those people. And so this man was not only just a Gentile dog, he was a flea on a dog. It was a servant. And so what we find is Jesus goes on in verse 11 to say, many will come from the east and the west. He's talking about Gentile nations. They'll come and they will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and be a part of the kingdom. And yet there are going to be people within your own house that you're going to see that think they're doing well and they are going to be really upset. 
In other words, uh, there's going to be folks that are going to sit in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and they are going to bust the gates of hell wide open, having no idea that they have not managed to follow one thing Jesus said, not actually believed in their heart that he was the Son of God. And so this is the result for many who think they're in good shape. And yet there's going to be many that are going to come in and they're going to wonder week in and week out how they can possibly survive another week. Lord, help me through this week. Lord, help me through this week. They're going to be dependent upon God one step at a time. And what they're going to find is while they thought they weren't in good shape, welcome to heaven. And so this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. But ultimately, what, what the real reality is, it doesn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile, that without Christ, without a Savior, it doesn't make any difference who you are. It doesn't make any difference the color of your skin. That's what he's trying to share with them. And so what I love then in verse 13, to sum this section up, is Jesus tells him, go on your way as you believe, so let it be done. In that very hour, his servant was healed. And so go on your way. Here, here's, the, here's the point that if it's in his will, it's going to happen. And all we have to do, the part we play in it, is just asking. Now, it's possible that it's not going to be in his will, and it's not going to happen, but there's a chance that it is in his will, and it might happen. When Will and Brooklyn first moved into our house, they had spent five years in foster care, and what we found is uh, they didn't ask for things. They'd had such a life of disappointment, they just quit asking because it's probably not going to happen. And so it's taken us, and it's still a struggle even to this day for them to simply ask for things. Because you never know, you might get it. And I gave him this example, and maybe this will ring true with some of you as I'm looking at some of the men out there. If I hadn't have asked your mom, it wasn't going to happen. She was way out of my league, you understand? There was a chance she was going to tell me to beat it, loser. And she had every right to tell me that because she's smoking hot, and I'm not. This is the deal. But like Dumb and Dumber, you're saying there's a chance. There might be a chance that she says, yes, she might be having a weak moment. I did look pretty awesome in my cutoff shirt right out of the gym. I'm like, hey, what do you say? She might have just been fooled a little bit. And so if I can have a victory, you see, you can have a victory, and there might be a chance the same thing applies with our Heavenly Father. But so often we don't even go to Him and bother asking. We've already predetermined He's going to say no. And so the reality is, just like we tell our kids, if you're not willing to ask, guess what the answer is? It's no. James says, you have not because you ask not. We're not willing to even put it out there to ask. But there's just a chance Dad might say yes. Continuing on in verse 14, with the next healings, we see, And now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. And so now for the third miracle we have, Peter actually wanted his mother-in-law to live. That's a joke. You can laugh. Peter, okay. That's not at all it. It's okay. It's church. We can chuckle in church. But the third miracle we see is Peter's mother-in-law, she's sick with some kind of fever. We're not sure what. But Jesus touches her. The fever leaves her again immediately. And, and 
what I wanted to share with you is for the third time now, three out of three of these stories, Jesus is breaking social boundaries. That if he heals someone outside the camp, someone that Jews would have nothing to do with, he then turns and heals a servant of a Gentile, and then he goes and touches a woman. What in the world are you doing? He's breaking down these social barriers. And, and, and here's the thing. I want to point you to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And this is important for us to remember because everybody has got some kind of a movement. This is what we want to read here in verse 28 of chapter 3. There is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but you all are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't see male. He didn't see servant. He didn't see color. He only saw all are one in me. And so he has no problem reaching out and touching this woman. And then to go on, what we notice from her is she is touched by Jesus. And look what her reaction is. She gets up and immediately begins to serve. She doesn't say, I'm going to need a couple weeks to recover from this. He, his healings are immediate. They are complete. And then the reaction is to want to serve. And if you think about this from the standpoint of the Apostle Paul, uh, Saul at this time, Saul of Tarsus was going all over. He was, uh, he was killing Christians. And so he's headed on the road to Damascus to find this new group of Christians. He's looking to smoke some more Christians. And on his way, what happens is he gets knocked off his horse by our Lord and Savior. He knocks him plumb off. And as he's laying there on the ground, blinded by this light, he asks two questions, which, by the way, are two wonderful questions for us to ask. Uh, first, he says, who are you? Lord. He recognized the authority right off the bat. And Jesus tells him, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, the same one, by the way, you're persecuting. But Paul's follow-up question was just as important. He says, what do you want me to do? What do, you, what do I need to do for you? I've acknowledged authority. You've touched me. You've knocked me off my horse, off my high horse. I'm laying here on the ground. What is it you would have me to do? Continuing in verse 16. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And so the first question you might have, or maybe you don't have, is they all came in the evening. That seems like an odd time to come when there's no streetlights. Well, if you look through the chronological uh, layout of Jesus' miracles, many of these actually took place on the Sabbath, and the Jewish people were not supposed to travel on the Sabbath. Now, Shabbat for them starts at 6 p.m. on a Friday, and it goes till 6 p.m. on Saturday, which means if there's this great healer in your land, when are you going to travel? You're going to go as soon as Sabbath is over. 6.01 p.m., I'm heading to go find Jesus. And so when evening come, a great multitude comes to him, and they're demon-possessed, and they're sick, and he stays there, and he heals them. He fulfills what Isaiah spoke of the Messiah about in Isaiah 53. And if you want to camp out in a spot in the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to camp out there. It paints an unbelievable picture of Jesus as the Messiah, as his uh, stripes are laid upon him, and then he takes our infirmities and bears our sickness. What he's really doing, I mentioned it in the introduction, he's giving us a preview of what 
heaven is going to look like. So for many, we've seen physical uh, healings that don't happen. But what Jesus is showing is, look, with me, I'm going to heal everything someday. In this day and age, in this temporary spot that we're in, not all physical maladies are going to be healed. Not all are going to be taken care of. But for all, for all of eternity, they will be. And yet what the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 10, verse 13, for all who come to Jesus will be healed spiritually. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That doesn't mean uh, every now and again. That doesn't mean uh, just uh, you know every other person. That means whoever. If you're whoever in here, that means you. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for all of eternity. By the way, that's a way better deal than just here temporarily. And so this is the promise. And what Jesus is doing, he's showing what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like when he comes to rule and reign for all of eternity. Now then, let's go to our last section of Scripture in verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he commanded, he gave a command to depart to the other side. <clears throat> then a certain scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you for wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me be the first, let me go, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me. And let the dead bury their dead. Well, that's an odd spot to end, isn't it? <laughs> so Jesus is first uh, approached by a scribe who wants to follow him. And just to give you a little geography lesson, because I know you're into geography. Uh, the Sea of Galilee sits down into a, a hole with mountains all around it. It's actually a, a lake, a large lake. It's only eight miles wide, though. So you can actually see from one side of the lake to the other. What Jesus was doing was getting in a boat to go to the other side because most people had to walk, and it was about 20 miles around to walk. So as he tries to move about and minister to different people, he's basically giving himself a day and a half head start before the crowd catches up to him. And so he gets in a boat, he commands him to go to the other side <clears throat> where he can continue his ministry to people in the Galilee region. And as he goes, he's approached by a scribe. Now, a scribe would be one of the religious elite. Remember, as he's talking about them being hypocrites, he says, scribes and Pharisees. These guys were the ones with religious game. And so this man comes to him. He, he recognizes Jesus, and, and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This seems like an unbelievable thing. He's got people wanting to follow him, and yet it's an interesting response. What, what he says is, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he's essentially saying is, hey, bud, it's not as glamorous as it looks. Like It looks like a rock concert everywhere you see, and yet the reality is for an itinerant preacher that's traveling around the Galilee region, he actually doesn't even have a home. And so are you sure he's telling him, count the cost? And so... Uh, this is probably not the most popular thing to teach on a Sunday morning, but as we work our way through Scripture, one thing I promise to do is always uh, be honest with you guys. What Jesus is telling him is count the cost. That salvation 
is a free gift. There is nothing you can do to earn salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, It's by grace through faith that you were saved and that this is a gift of God. By grace through faith. Grace is, by definition, unmerited favor. Nothing you can do to deserve it, to earn it. It's a free gift of God. And yet, it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Your very life will have to be laid down, which, by the way, is not such an awful trade because we are all infected with a disease called S-I-N, and it leads to death. So in exchange of your life, which is actually a, one of spiritual death, you're going to receive life, but it's going to cost you potentially family, potentially friends, potentially people you work with. You just don't know. It's going to cost you relationally in this life, perhaps even jobs. And so he's trying to make this very clear. If you follow me, you need to count this cost. And he's saying something very similar to this next person that comes up, one of his disciples, and he says, this man says, Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 21. But the issue with this is, Lord, let me, is a contradiction of terms. You're saying, Lord, Adonai, Master, let me. Lord, I'm going to give you some direction about what I'd like to do before I follow you. And so often when the Lord calls us or gives us direction in a thing, this is what we want to do. We want to give him parameters. I'd love to follow you, but here's, here's all the things I've got to do first, Jesus. I've got all this list of stuff I've got to do. And, and oftentimes, by the way, they're good things. You understand that, that burying your parents or taking care of, this, this phrase that he's saying actually means I have to go take care of my folks, they're elderly. Taking care of your folks is not a bad thing, but it wasn't the best thing. And so what we find is he's got a me-first mentality. Now this is very dangerous for the unbeliever because me-first for the unbeliever actually leaves you with that whole wailing and gnashing of teeth thing. Not great. It leaves you outside of heaven. It, but the issue for the believer is it actually keeps us from blessings. As I was talking to you about salvation being a free gift, it's important to understand, but while the gift of salvation comes by faith, do you realize that blessings actually take place through obedience? As Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and we went through the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed, oh, how happy is the man who does these things. <laughs> He's not saying, oh, how saved is the man, but oh, how happy is the man who does these things. And, and so often we get this wrong in church because we want to tell people, look, it's all free, just come in. And then they wonder, people wonder why we're not blessed. Well, what have you done? <laughs> you haven't done anything. You're not trying at all. And this is what, what Jesus is trying to say. Don't make this a me-first relationship. Instead, make it a Jesus-first relationship. And so to end uh, with a, a little uh, sidebar story, uh, in January of 2018, I got the first opportunity I'd ever had to teach 
uh, back-to-back. And what I mean by that is uh, teach on a Wednesday night. I think we were in Ecclesiastes and then a Sunday morning to actually get to teach both services in Farmington. So kind of a big deal when you first start out. I mean, you're used to maybe writing one every couple of weeks and then to get to write two messages in a week. Uh, after the Wednesday night message, though, I got home and I had this place on my back just above uh, my, well, I don't know how else do you say it. It was above my butt crack. There's probably a better way to say it than that, that I'm going to wish this wasn't live streaming right now. But that's where it was. It was in that area, right on my belt line. Belt line would have been better. Boy, can we rewind that? Can't do it. It was on my belt line. And so Angela, doing what wives do, she said, well, just leave it alone. Don't pick at it. And so I, like most men, completely ignored my wife. And I continued to pick at it because I was going to get this, whatever it was, off. By Sunday, uh, what was just a small spot was about the size of a tennis ball. Uh, It was so hot to the touch that it it hurt uh, terribly. In fact, if you were to go back and watch the YouTube video, I'm sitting on the swivel stool on Sunday teaching like this because it hurt too bad to actually lean back. Oh, see that? Nice hands. It hurt too bad to actually lean back. So by Monday, I was in enough pain, it actually made myself sick. I was, I was throwing up from pain, so I reluctantly went to the doctor. And, and when you go to the doctor and he checks out something like that, if his reaction is ever, whoa, that's a big one, that's not a good thing. Like, I don't know if that's a professional diagnosis, but whoa, that's a big one, uh, seems bad. And then he got his phone out and was taking pictures. I'm like, dude, are you posting this on Facebook? He's like, oh, I'm just sending it to a friend. <laughs> okay, how about you fix it? They ended up checking me into the hospital where I spent three days in the hospital. I actually had staph infections, so I had to be quarantined the whole bit. But finally getting home, and, and that's not a normal thing for me to be out of, you know, commission for that long. The only really cool thing about it is Monday night I got to watch the national championship game with Clemson and Alabama play with no kids bugging me, and I was completely high on something. I don't know what they gave me, but I was high as a kite cheering for Alabama. Anyway. Fast forward to, to uh, Thursday or Friday when I got home, and, and I'm there, and I'm, I'm thinking through this whole thing, what's, what's going on? Like, Lord, I, I, I think I tried pretty hard. Like, I taught a couple messages, and what he told me was, and he doesn't speak to me audibly very often. It was in a small voice. He said, count the cost. Count the cost. So I'm like, wow. Okay. So I'm thinking about physical pain. I'd never had pain quite like that before. Like, you know what, Lord, you're worth it. I'm counting the cost here, and you are completely worth physically this kind of pain. I'm in. I'm all in for you, Jesus. So then fast forward about 18 months later, and uh, the part I I left out of the story is uh, when we moved to Farmington, it was a mess. I've shared that with some of you guys. But but the Lord had allowed us to actually have a successful business, and things had, had taken off, and and about three years in, things are going pretty good in January 18 when, I, when I'm having this conversation with Jesus about counting the cost. And we developed a good uh, client list, one large client. They called us, you know, we, we were their go-to company. You know, Ashley Construction, that, that's the guys. You send them in and, and they'll take care of this project. And so feeling pretty good about that. Uh, 18 months later, uh, what I found is the Lord was calling us back to Charleston to take another job. And you see, most of my career, for sure, my entire life, my dream was to own my own business. 
I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, to go do the thing. I, I grew up with entrepreneurs in my family. Like, that's my thing, right? And so I finally got that. The Lord let me have that thing. And yet, what he was doing was calling me out of it. You see, for me, the reality was count the cost was far deeper than any physical pain. Uh, leaving the thing I dreamed about, the thing I always wanted, was way more painful than leaving anything that hurt me physically. But here's the reality of all that. Had I stayed and not chosen to come back, I believe, I know for a fact, I'm going to heaven. Nothing's going to stop that. And I know my God is good enough. He was going to bless what we were doing in Farmington. But I would have given up second best for the best. I would have accepted something less than what he had for me. And now, as I sit and I get a look out, and some of you are probably like, this doesn't seem like best. Let me tell you, you're looking at it from a way different vantage point than I am. They're getting to interact with you all, getting to have conversations with you all, getting to see Jesus advance things in your life, getting to teach the Word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is the best. It doesn't get any better for me. And so, had I missed that opportunity, I would have given up the best for the second best. And so, how many times do we get an opportunity to take what he's given to us that's best? How many times do we put parameters on it and say, Lord, I'm not sure I can leave this thing or quit that thing, that I, I have to stay here because look at how good it is and what he's trying to say is, but I've got something so much better. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is a bad thing, but it's not the best thing. And here's the reality of it. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, Jesus compared him to a wind. When he's talking to Nicodemus in Nicodemus chapter in, in John chapter three, he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, The Holy Spirit blows this way and that, and you don't know which way it's coming or where it's going. And that's how it works in our life. The Holy Spirit blows in and he blows out and he goes this way and that way. And the reality is if we don't get our sail up to catch it, we might miss it. And it's not for salvation. I want to be very clear about that. He loves us enough that he died for us. But we will miss out on tremendous blessings if we don't get our sails up and catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for loving us enough to give us clear signs when you're pointing to what's best. Probably a part of that story I should have shared more in detail was how clear you made the signs that we needed to leave. But thank you, Father, for your graciousness even in that. And yet, you love us so much, you give us a choice. That love demands a choice. Thank you, Father, for loving us that much. Thank you for choosing to lay down your life for each of us. And as we get ready this morning to open up uh, this time for communion, Father, just help us to reflect on that. What are you trying to blow into our life? Which direction are you trying to blow this way or that? Which way are you speaking, Lord? Give us ears to hear. 
pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys want to stay seated um, for a moment, Jake and Michaela are going to start the song, but as they start the song, we're going to ask you to come up. Uh, you can come up in, in families or in groups to take communion. If you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take communion. We don't have formal membership here. In fact, uh, if you like this as your church, hey, congratulations, you're a member. So you can take communion. Either way, we encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to come up and take uh, the elements, take it back to your seat, and then we'll, uh, we'll partake of it together after this song.
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives direction on how they were to conduct the Lord's Supper. And in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord Jesus, as we take of this bread, we do remember. Lord, we remember how you willingly counted the cost and laid down your life for each of us to be a ransom for many. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance for me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Lord Jesus, we look upon this cup and we think back in remembrance to what you've done. So very grateful that if anyone ever counted the cost, it was you. And yet in Hebrews, what we, what we read is that for the joy set before you, despising the shame, you allowed yourself to be nailed upon the cross for each of us. And so we praise you for this and we thank you and we remember you in Jesus' name. Would you please stand as we have one last song? You are good, you are good When there's nothing good in me You are love, you are love on display for all to see you are light you are light when the darkness closes in you are hope you are hope you have covered all my sin you are peace you are peace when my fear is crippling you are true you are true even in my wondering you are joy you are joy you're the reason that i sing you are life you are life and you death has lost its sting and no i'm running to your arms i'm running to your arms the riches of your love will always be Nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world forever reign. You are more, you are more than my words would.
will ever say you are lord you are lord all creation will proclaim you are here you are here in your presence i made whole you are god you are god of all else i'm letting go and oh, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms, the riches of your love will always be enough, nothing compares to your embrace, light of the world forever. heart will sing no other name Jesus Jesus my heart will sing no other name Jesus Jesus and no I'm running to your arms I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. Light of the world forever And the church says, Amen. Oh, there I am. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. God bless you guys as you go out for your week. Uh, if you need prayer in any way, I'm happy to stick around. I will let you know we love for you guys to hang around and talk to one another. Angela and I have to actually head to the airport here in just a little bit. We're taking eight children, or eight children, feels like eight children, six children to Arizona today So uh, for her sister's wedding. So if you see us skate off a little bit faster than normal, it's not that we don't love you. We love you. It's okay. But we do have to get to the airport. So if you want to pray for someone, though, you can pray for me. So if you've ever seen that look that guys have in the airport when they're dragging children through, they all like, like you make eye contact and they sort of do the head nod. And it's like, bro, I feel you. Like, you're, I see the pain. So that's going to be me with all the gaggle of Ashley children. So anyway, God bless you guys. Look forward to seeing you next week.